You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Welcome to episode 57 of the Pimpcron Warhammer podcast, and I am the aforementioned Pimpcron. And what are we talking about tonight? Well, we discuss a lore story of one of 40K's biggest Mary Sues, and a Mary Sue is basically a character that can do no wrong, and he or she is great at everything. So we're going to discuss that. We are also going to do a want that or want that not, on the new Ossiarch Bone Reaper model. It's called the Gothazar Harvester. Let's talk about that. And finally, we are going to be talking about... What else are we talking about? I already forgot. The main topic. What was that thing I just recorded? Oh, yeah. So, uh, don't make your campaign suck. How about that? It's a cautionary tale about campaigns sucking in a store. Uh, so, what have I been up to? Well, work has been a bitch, so there's that, and I got to play my Caradron Overlords versus um, TJ at our store. TJ plays Soul Blight, and he typically runs three Blood Knights squads and two uh, Vampire Lords on Zombie Dragons, which is a pretty tough list to say the least. Uh, and I was curious if my Caradron overlords could, um, defeat him because, you know, with all the artillery on the ships and things like that, I thought, you know, I might have a decent chance at that. The problem is I've only played, I think, four games with my Caradron, so I wasn't entirely sure how to deal with his army because his army's very fast and it flies across across the board and, like... His knights do D3 damage when they charge, and the bone dragons do a lot. It's just it's just a lot of damage, and they're very fast. So, another thing is, is with my Caradron Overlords, I love the bubble wrap. And, like, those blood knights, they can actually just jump over. They He takes an ability where they can all fly, so they just jump over my bubble wrapping units. So, how did that go, you may ask? Well, I can tell you that... He caught my ship, he got double turn, after the first turn, uh, he got double turn, and he wiped me off the table at the start of turn two. Yes, that is my first significant defeat in a long, long time. So, I instantly decided to change my battle tactics, and I said, hey TJ, do you want to play another game? And he agreed to it. So, changing my battle tactics... I let him go first instead of me. It was an objective game. That's the only reason why I wanted to go first the first time. I know the the risks involved. And normally with Caradron, I always like to go second. This time I changed it. And it bit me in the butt. So he tabled me on turn two, the first game. The second game went much, much better. And I stood a much better chance. And I tabled him on turn four. So now that's not a turn two tabling. but he tabled me turn two, and then I tabled him turn four. So uh, we used the exact same lists. I didn't change a thing. I just changed my tactics. And Caradron are very glass cannony. They're um, they're a little bit mobile because of the ships. I don't find that the ships are particularly good or competitive, uh, which is fine because I just really like the ships anyway. And we had a pretty good game actually. Um, 
And uh, I, I was feeling a little better afterwards because I was thinking, okay, okay. So he, he, my Kyrgyz can beat him. It's just that I have to play it a different way. And the second time worked. So, you know, the Kyrgyz overlords, I look through their book and I'm not like super smitten with any of their rules, honestly. They're, um, you know, like their Kyrgyz overlords faction specific rules. They're different amendments and footnotes and blah, blah, blah. I'm just not just not feeling it. So I almost feel like I would be better off doing just a plain order army and, you know, using mostly Caradron overlords, but peppering a bunch of other dwarf units. Now I know there'd be no synergy there or anything like that, but I'm not really that worried about the synergy. Um, I just feel like I would have more um, variety and things like that. You know, you could take a... Um, uh, Lord Ordinator to buff up my vehicles or things like that. So that's that's a thought anyway. I don't know that I'm actually going to do it, but um, Caradron Overlords, I find their relics to be very meh. I find their ships to be very meh. And I find all of their footnotes and all that stuff to be very meh. Like, it's it's just like, eh, I don't know. I mean, to I feel like their book could be a lot better. And, um... I'm still really enjoying the army because it is a challenge being a glass cannon. Same reason why I like my Dark Eldar. But I really feel like my Dark Eldar does it a lot better than my Caradron Overlords. So, uh, if nothing else, there's a lot more units to choose from. The Caradron Overlords suffer from a lot of the new AOS army syndromes where they just don't have many models. And that's... That's kind of a pain in the butt. Not to mention, they've been nerfed quite a bit. Like, Grunstock Thunderers used to be able to make up the entire unit of special weapons if you wanted, and now it's been reduced to one of each. And the ranges have all been shot down to, like, 12 inches or something stupid. Um, so, but Caradron Overlords, I did it for the ships, is what I did it for. I really, really like the ships. Even if they're not great, I just love the ships. So, I want to try to make that whole ship thing work. And we'll see if I can. Anyway, uh, th I think that's it. Oh, you know what? Oh, shit. I almost forgot. So, you can get 20% off a Sable Army Transport order if you join his newsletter and get the code off of that. Uh, he had not given me the code at that time when he was on the podcast the other day. But... He said he now has a code. If you join his newsletter, he will give you a 20% off code, and that is awesome. So I wanted to mention that. Also, I had a super great interview with Dan over at the Lonely Havoc podcast, and he has a... It's not... I mean, it's not technically a Warhammer podcast. Basically... It's he interviews different gamers and they all happen to kind of play Warhammer RPGs or whatever. And he interviews several different gamers and he talks about their life. He asks you basically 20 questions and whatnot. And it was a serious blast. He had me on a couple weeks ago and it aired. We uh, had a really fun time. So if you if you want to know a little more about the Pimpcron personally, uh, number one, remember I'm selling that really great Pimpcron bathwater, so you can taste a little bit. Uh, number two, you should head over to the Lonely Havoc podcast and find out, I think it was episode before last, and find out, it's called, uh, he doesn't name it with my name, so it'll be hard. Um, look up the, <laughs> look up the show with the title Goblin Porn. 
That's right, goblin porn. Because uh, that comes up in our conversation. I won't tell you why or how, but just check it out. He was super, super nice. Um, I, I really enjoyed talking to him. And uh, it's always nice to meet new people in the hobby because, you know, there's a lot of, like I said with Matt Sabal, there's a lot of great people in this hobby. Um, I know sometimes we get kind of a bad rap because of power gamers or neckbeards or whatever, but pretty much everybody I've ran into is just, just swell. So go check out his podcast, and uh, I started listening to all of his other episodes because I really enjoyed being on, and uh, it's just very interesting. You just sit down, and they, you know, their conversation kind of meanders, and he interviews this other person, and sometimes they're famous, sometimes they're not, and in, in my case, I was like, you know, super famous, and I guess I'm done talking now. Go check out the Lonely Havoc podcast, and also... Go join the newsletter for Sayball, and he will give you 20% off an order with the code. Toodles. Want that or want that not? This is Want That or Want That Not with the Pimp Cron, and this week, I'm sorry, I've got something that I absolutely hate that I want to review. I'm sorry for you, uh, Ossiarch Bone... What are they called? Ossiarch Bone Reaper fans. So, you all know that I play King, uh, Kings of War. Tomb Kings. You all know that I play Tomb Kings, and I love Tomb Kings, and so far, with the Ossiarch Bone Reapers, I like pretty much everything about them. I don't care for the three faces on some of those guys, uh, where they're, it's like uh, many faces from He-Man. Don't care for that, but the this is the first time I have ever seen a model where I feel like GW has clearly missed the mark. Completely missed the mark. So what am I talking about here? Well, I am talking about the Gothazar Harvester. So they just released this uh, yesterday. I mean, they didn't release it, but they, they teased it. And this looks like the skeleton of Bear in the Big Blue House. Have you ever seen that show? If you don't, if you haven't, look it up. He was a hunchbacked uh, person in a suit to be a bear, and it was a children's show. It was after my time, but I remember seeing it. And he's real hunched over, and this looks like the skeleton of the bear in the big blue house. He's quite obese. His back is like a cart for body parts. I don't I don't really get what's going on here. You know what this is? This looks like a bad kit bash. Is exactly what this model looks like. This is like some 12-year-old put together a bunch of pieces and it's like, "Hey, it's really cool. Look his crotch has a face." Yeah. Oh, you don't know that? Yeah, his crotch has a face. What are you talking about? No, literally his crotch, it has a face. His crotch, he has a cod piece, right? This cod piece has not only a face that's smiling at you, which is weird enough, it also has a rib cage, and this cod piece has two complete arms that is picking stuff up off the ground. I mean, this dude has a prehensile boner, is what he has. And, I mean, good for him, I guess, but it, I, I just don't like this at all. I just don't like it. It's... I just don't like it. <laughs> like, there's nothing to like about this, honestly. And the cod piece with the face and the arms really, really irks me. But this is a portly skeletal model. Um, I guess with his back being like a, a, a cart for body parts, I guess that's kind of cool. 
But then he's got this tail, right? This long tail that drags the ground, kind of like a, like a dinosaur, although they didn't drag the ground. But you get my point. He's got this long tail, and it ends in a fist? It's a literal fist on the end of his tail. Now, ironically, he doesn't have hands. These giant arms on this dude, he's got either two blades, or you can turn him into a, um, a club-fisted douchebag, one or the other. The head doesn't match the body. The head looks like, well, the bear in the big blue house's skull. And he's like a living construct. He's full of bones and stuff. It just... Dude, GW, don't let your 12-year-old nephew... I know he's a very bright boy for his age. Don't let him design your new models, because this is just kind of dumb. This is like, you know, they, they say, uh... You know, um, never go full retard. Well, this is... This is this is bad, and uh, just, I just can't even, honestly, as if, you know, all of this is semi-passable, even the freaking hand on his tail, which I un- do not understand at all, but the cod piece with the face, the rib cage, and the arms is just too much, it's, it's just too much, GW, you, you can't do this, <laughs> just, I can't handle it, so... Sorry to just crap all over this, but I absolutely hate this arm, this, uh, this model. I hate it. So, it's got these stick little legs. It's got these tiny little legs on the bottom of this massive body with these massive arms and this bear in the big blue house skull and a fist on the end of its tail. It's just stupid. It's just stupid. And if you like it, you're stupid. Alright, that's enough of my negativity. Other than that, the Osiarch Bone Reapers are pretty cool. Um, they've got kind of like a samurai-ish kind of look to them, you know, kind of. I like them. If I do end up buying this model, I am 100% kit bashing it. Gotta change it. I'm cutting off the cod piece. I don't like when it smiles at me. It's just weird. But if you like it, I mean, you know, to each his own, you're wrong. But to each his own, you can be wrong. You have that right. All right, I guess I'm done pooping on it. Sorry for the negativity. Now, here's an idea. Today is story time, and I wanted to cover one of the biggest Mary Sues of the Warhammer 40k universe. What does Mary Sue mean? I don't know. (laughs) I'm just kidding. A Mary Sue is a character in a story. They can literally do whatever the plot needs them to do. They're good at everything. They have no flaws, that sort of thing. Well... In my opinion, one of the biggest Mary Sues ever written in Warhammer lore is Lord Kaldor Drago of the Grey Knights. Yep, he's Supreme Grandmaster of the Grey Knights. And once you hear this tale, which is a slightly lengthy, uh, you will find out that he is one of the biggest Mary Sues. He's just great at everything. Well, let's talk about the tale of Kaldor Drago. The tale of Kaldor Drago truly began during the demon incursion of the world of Akralem. Makar the Reborn had led forth a demonic army from the realm of chaos and would be satisfied with nothing less than the ruin of not only Akralem, but the entire Vidor sector. Vidar sector. It was inevitable that the Grey Knights would stand up against such a threat. Together with nine regiments of Imperial Guard and Space Marines from the Astral Knights and Flesh Terrors chapters, hmm, the Third Brotherhood of the Grey Knights, in whose ranks Drago fought, descended upon the world. What awaited was one of the most terrible battles of that century. Now, 
you know you have a lot of battles in Warhammer, so if this is one of the worst battles of that century, that's pretty significant, I'd say. There could be little doubt that if the Grey Knights had not been there, Acrolim would have fallen. The tide was only turned by their daring strike against Makar's Warp Fortress. It was here that Kaldor Drago, a freshly ennobled battle brother, made a name for himself. It was Drago who dealt the death blow to Makar, and so cast the demonic horde back into the warp, but the demon clung, the knife, clung to life long enough to place a vengeful curse upon Drago. Victory on Acrylum saw Drago acclaimed with the rank of Justicar, and first of many such promotions. For two centuries, Drago served his chapter, chapter and emperor with unfailing distinction. He earned honors and glory unsurpassed by any Grey Knight before him, save perhaps Janus himself, foremost of the founders whose deeds had shaped the Imperium in its darkest times. Can you say Mary Sue? Yeah, I say Mary Sue. Let's keep going. He became Supreme Grandmaster in the late 41st millennium following the slaughter of the previous chapter lord at the hands of the demon Primarch Mortarion, and in the same battle he carved his forebearer's name upon Mortarion's rotting heart, an insult the demon has never forgotten. The defeat of the demon Primarch was quickly tempered by the dark visions of the Prognosticars. Drago's ascension to Supreme Grandmaster had disturbed the path of fate, though none could foresee the consequences. Two centuries after Drago's victory on Acrolem, an astropathic distress beacon brought news to Titan that Acrolem had been invaded by demons once again. Upon learning of this, Drago was like, bitch, and he knew without doubt that Makar had been reborn. And this was the demon prince's attempt to bring true his curse. Having so determined, Drago gave word forbidding his chapter to involve themselves with Acrolem, lest others fall prey to the doom that was his burden to bear. A duty his battle brothers bore unwillingly, though, to his knowledge, none disobeyed. Yet the world was not to be abandoned to its fate. Drago took ship to Acrolem, there to meet his unfolding destiny alone, because he knew he had plot armor. There was nothing they could do to him. So it was that Kaldor Drago, Lord of the Grey Knights, came once again to Acrolem. He spoke few words, yet his grim purpose was plain to behold as he trod old battlefields reawakened to fresh slaughter. At the siege of Castle Grosseth, Gorseth, man, all these words, they piss me off. At the Castle Gorseth, it was Drago who unleashed the Psyflame flame that swept the demons away. Well, that was easy. And he who struck the plague-rotten abomination that commanded the assault. Kind of racist. In the Treberan Valley, it was Drago who held rear guard in the narrowest part of the pass, holding the baying hordes of madness at bay, whilst the Cadian 912th fell back. Survivors of the retreat recount that Drago held that rock-strewn corridor for two days, never once missing a blow nor taking a backward step. Good God. It would have been hard to judge which side held Lord Kaldor Drago in the greatest dread. The demons for the crippling losses he had dealt upon their kind, or the soldiers and officers of the Imperial Guard, who saw only a silent brute whose armor was slick with the blood of the slain Hellspawn. So, yeah, he held an entire canyon for two straight days by himself against a horde of demons, and he never missed with his strikes, and he never took one step backward. Whatever. That's what I say. That's my response to this. Whatever, Mary Sue. 
Lord Kaldor, Mary Sue, Drago. The confrontation between Drago and Makar took place upon the pinnacle of Shadow Peak, before the swirling warp rift from which the Demon Prince drew his unholy power. As Imperial Guardsmen battled against the brain demon hordes, Drago sought his enemy of old, for he knew Makar's death would end the demon's plans of conquest, just as it had so many years ago. On the edge of the rift they battled, the knight and the demon, each using every tactic at their command to break the other's guard. The battlefield rang to the sound of their titanic duel, to the clamorous strike of Nemesis' sword upon demonic blade, of silvered steel upon warp metal. The demon prince spat curses and insults at Drago, but his words and sorceries could find no purchase. Again and again, Drago summoned the sanctifying flame, yet Makar merely laughed at the charring of his own flesh, and Drago could not keep pace with his adversary forever. Makar's blade glowed darkly with warp flame, and he unleashed a blow mightier than any that had preceded it. The demon blade struck home with a dull crack, shattering the nemesis sword halfway down its length, and driving the Grey Knight to one knee. Uh-oh. Makar bellowed with victory and brandished his blade for the final blow. However, Drago was not yet spent. Roaring his own battle cry, he rose up and thrust his sword's severed shard into Makar's black heart. With that one blow, Drago delivered Acrylum for the second time. As death throes racked Makar's body, so too did they begin to tear at the warp portal he had summoned. The rift's baleful energies began to disperse, and one by one the demons of his army faded into nothingness. Yet before the portal closed completely, Makar had one final act of vengeance. With his last strength, the demon prince cast his talons around Drago's throat and heaved the Grey Knight into the collapsing rift. So did Kaldor Drago pass out of the mortal world and into legend. Whoa. I'm not really that impressed yet. Let's keep going. The tale of Keldor Drago did not end that day. Oh shit, I thought it was done. As many supposed, for he survived his passage into the realm of chaos. Lesser men would have been driven insane by their arrival in the domain of the chaos gods, where damnation lurks upon every path. Yet, Drago's mind had long been hardened to the madness and seductions of chaos, and he somehow endured in this land where no other man could, because he's a Mary Sue. We've already covered this part. For an uncounted age, Drago wandered that terrible, ever-shifting landscape. I guess he didn't have to eat or poop? I don't know. His path was strewn by demons who sought to slay him or seduce him to darkness. hey Yet, through bitter struggle, Drago overcame each of them. Atop the blood falls, where the acrid ichor of Korn's fallen champions tumbles endlessly into the void, Drago slew the great bloodthirster Karvoth. With cleansing fire, he drove demonic taint from the beast's great axe. Every time I hear demonic taint, I just gotta laugh. I can't, I can't handle it. So he drove this, so he basically washed off the taint, I guess. He washed off this uh, demon's taint off the axe. That's pretty gross, actually. And used the molten remains to reforge his sword, sundered in battle with Makar the Reborn so long ago. He unleashed sanctified flame against, again amongst the writhing jungles of Nurgle's domain and, domain, and for a long time, the gusting warp winds that buffeted him carried a charcoal stench and the tortured screaming of demonic vegetation. Demonic vegetation? That sounds pretty cool, actually. 
On a journey through the Whispering Meadows, six sisters, the chosen handmaidens of Slanesh, sought to tempt Draco with promises of glory, power, and all the myriad riches desired by mortal flesh and spirit. But their words could find no lasting purchase upon his soul, and he scattered the demonette's dismembered remains amongst the alabaster grasses. At the gates of the inevitable city, that's a weird name, the Lord of Change, McCatchin, McCatchin, I guess, offered Drago a path homewards, but in reply, the Grey Knight smote the city walls and left the bird demon entombed among the ruins. However, the mortal world had not was not yet done with Lord Drago. When the prophet of Jostero forged an alliance with the demon Nikari, he drew a portion of the realm of chaos into the mortal world, and Drago was drawn through along with it. So was Drago briefly reunited with his trapter, for a brotherhood had arrived on Justero to combat Nakari's threat. Drago was clearly long adrift in time, for he did not recognize these warriors, yet they embraced him as their brother, and fighting side by side, they cast down the mad prophet of Justero and banished his demonic allies. Alas, Drago's victory was a hollow one. For when the gateway closed, the Grey Knight found himself drawn through the rift and trapped again within the warp. He had helped bring about the deliverance of Justero, of course he did, but could not save himself. Aw, he's tragic. Such has been Drago's fate ever since to walk the realm of chaos for unknowable periods of time, on occasion taking his eternal battle into the mortal world for brief spans before being freshly jailed upon victory. Since the Great Rift tore the Imperium asunder, Kaldor Drago has found his way back into real space more and more frequently. Some of the Great Masters believe that as the Cicatrix Maledictum shredded the veil between reality and the warp, so did it weaken the bonds that tethered Drago to the Chaos Realm. Others believe that the forces of chaos that occluded the Supreme Grandmaster's vision are now dispersed across dimensions, and thus Kaldor Drago can perceive the needs of those he leads across the vastness of the galaxy. So he just shows up when he's like, hey, I'm, I'm kind of bored with killing demons. I'm here to help you guys. You got any weed? That's how I think he'd say it. He has even been witnessed fighting in different war zones on opposite sides of the galaxy because a Mary Sue can do that. He can just be everywhere because he's the best and you can't kill him. You can't even get rid of this dumbass. So, perhaps the opening of the rift will allow his return, or perhaps it will seal his fate forever! <gasps> Gasp! The prognosticars are divided on this matter. Drago himself does not spend his time musing over such issues. He uses what little time he has hunting down the foul spawn that the rift has regurgitated. Chief among his quarries is his enemy of old, the demon Primarch Mortarion, the murderer of his predecessor. So... You see why I think that Drago is a Mary Sue. Everything he does is the best, and he shows up when he's needed, and he's just the coolest, and just whatever. <laughs> just whatever. So, that is, in my opinion, the biggest Mary Sue in the Warhammer 40k lore. I hope you enjoyed it. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. Hey everybody, today I wanted to discuss with you the cautionary tale of running a store campaign. 
Many of you have probably tried a campaign at some point, and you've ran into tons of pitfalls, and boy howdy, are there plenty of pitfalls when doing a campaign. <sighs> so if you've played war games long enough, you've probably tried a participating in a campaign, and these are roughly the main problems that you'll run into while trying to run one. First of all is what type of campaign? Okay, this one's a hard one. Because there's so many options, and the closer you look at them, the scarier they all look. Do you use resources? A map-based campaign, like where you take ground for with every victory. Do you use a victory tree? Like a, um, it's called a tree campaign. Do certain areas grant bonuses for controlling them? Are you running a narrative campaign or a tournament-style campaign? The number of options and choices you have can just literally uh, freeze you with a... But what's it called? Uh, decision paralysis is what it's called. And there's really no right or wrong answer. Um, it really just depends on what type of group you have and what exactly you want out of your campaign. So, for my campaign, uh, the one that I'm specifically talking about, I chose a map-based system with solar systems being the control points in each sector. Now, this was at store number three that we went to. Um, each person started out with a home world and a one other sector. Each home world was randomly allocated a special rule to give to the army that controlled it. For, in, for example, one might be a forge world, where all your vehicles have a six-up, uh, feel no pain. Or one might be a sensor relay station, where you get um, to re-roll any of your pre-game rolls, you know, like for Season the Initiative, or whoever goes first, or things like that. Now, none of that's too game-breaking, but some of these worlds quickly became hotbeds for combat, while other ones were just kind of meh. And that was kind of by design because, you know, not every homeworld is created equal. And I wanted some things to be, you know, really, really important compared to others. So I actually thought this part of my campaign went pretty well once I actually picked a campaign style. I sifted through article after article and went to several different forums to find something that finally fit me. And in the end... I just made up my own based off a couple that I've seen. I mix and match different options. Now, you can completely go detailed with supply lines and reconnaissance, etc., like real war, but I didn't feel that was necessary. Um, you could do what I did and make it more streamlined and more of a tournament style. It seems to me that narrative campaigns are designed more for only two people or so because then it starts getting muddy. Um, so... Uh, this being that this was a full store campaign, I figured it would be easier just to do it this way that's more streamlined, which of course means that it's not as narrative. So, I started off with eight people, which I thought was a manageable number. Well, then the word spread quickly, and suddenly I have 12 people participating in this. And, you know, it's hard to get people to actually commit to any of these things or actually want to be part of it. So I had a real hard time telling anybody no. Now, I really didn't want things to get out of control, though. Then people started getting, uh, then people started dropping out, and they never even got to play, or people joined last minute because they heard there's a campaign going. We finally ended up with eight, and they paid the fee, and we started playing. So I went from eight to twelve back to eight, somewhere in the middle, we ended up with eight, like we originally wanted, and I was pretty happy with this number. So, 
Also, of course, the more people that play, the more that you're paying into the pot, so the you know the winning person or whatever can get some store credit and buy some stuff. So that's the real point behind my particular campaign. Kind of like a tournament, but mm, not too much. Um, so that right there is a question to ask yourself. How many people is too many people? It's hard to say, but ultimately depends on your group. If your people are well engaged in the campaign and they have the time to bust out at least one game a week or so, then you could go bigger and or maybe more complex. And if you were trying to do an actual narrative campaign where you're role playing a little and all that, I would really just try to stick to two people, but I would absolutely cut that off at four people max if you had four really well engaged people. Because you really can't have anybody that's, you know, not showing up or canceling or whatever. You just can't deal with that when you're trying to run a campaign. Because a lot of times all these people rely on each other. You know, like, oh, we want to all get the same number of games or, or whatever. And keeping their attention is very hard. So this is where it gets really messy. I had some of them excited about the campaign and others moderately engaged. But most of the gaming group only gets to play like once per week. And we usually just play pickup games. You know, we're not big tournament people or anything like that. And it's it's pretty freeform. So in this freeform atmosphere, um, you're usually able to play whoever you want. And you're not used to being tied down every week with the campaign. Well, that made some people restless. They're like, hey, man, want to play me tonight? And someone says, oh, I'd love to, but I have to do that campaign thing. So suddenly everyone had to spend their one game a week playing someone in a campaign they didn't necessarily feel like playing, or maybe even an army that they didn't necessarily feel like playing. You know, like I own a lot of different armies. Well, it kind of sucks to be pigeonholed into just playing one army every single week. Now that, you know, a lot of people would be like, oh, that's a first world problem, but it's the truth. And you're trying to keep people's attention in this whole campaign, so you really don't want to make it a chore to play in it. Now, it might work fine for some groups, but for my group, really, it, it doesn't work. We're, we're free spirits. So, the biggest thing I learned here is that you have to walk a fine line between keeping the pace of the campaign going and also giving people the freedom to play other games. So, we started doing a game every other week rule where you had to at least get two campaign games in a month. That alleviated some of the stress, but it started making the campaign drag out. So now I had this nice, concise campaign, and I had people playing every week, but people get bored playing every week, so then I make it every other week, and now all of a sudden, okay, now this campaign is going on for freaking ever. The next problem was attendance. That's right. Here's the train wreck. All of our players in my group are working adults, and many of them have families and things like that, so suddenly we have games scheduled between two people, and one can't make it. Every week, we have at least one person calling me and saying, you know, my child is sick, or work called me in, or jury duty, or someone said, I'm on trial for murder, or um, I'm traveling to Saturn, or I have a date with Carrot Top, or I got poop in my raccoon wounds. Uh, you know, it just color me frustrated. I don't know what color that would be, but just color me frustrated. In my wide-eyed noob campaign runner view, I figured people wouldn't join a campaign that they knew they couldn't finish. Well, guess what? Once again, I overestimated humanity. It's no wonder why my race is crawling up from our tomb worlds ready to destroy the living. 
You guys do nothing but cancel on us. And I hate wishy-washy people. Ultimately, this felt a lot like running a uh, RPG, because as the DM, you spend all this time and effort planning all this crap, and then all of your players ruin it for you. You know, you've put a lot of time and effort into this, which I did, making the map and scheduling all this and figuring out the game mechanics and all that. Well, that's that's it. So people just, you know, can't show up or whatever. And then you get some people that can play every week, and then some people that can't, so then some people get more games in than other people, which gives them an advantage, or maybe you might say a disadvantage, because they could lose more. So, it starts running too long. And it, we had like six people left in the campaign at the end, and uh, some had been eliminated because they actually lost all their games, but people weren't, people weren't even making their two games per month at this point. So it's mostly due to scheduling issues. So now even the people who are psyched for the campaign in the beginning were beginning to lose steam for it. We ended up playing a couple more weeks until there were just four people left and just said, screw it, and split the pot evenly between the four remaining people. It was really, really, after how much effort and time and excitement I started out with, it was a huge disappointment. So... What did I get out of this whole thing except for a stomach ulcer? I realized that the success of a campaign is entirely dependent on the type of people in your group. This is true for any size or any style of campaign. If you have a group of people who are enthusiastic about the campaign and have the free time and life situation to keep it going, then you can play with more people. If not, keep it small or don't do one at all. The stress of the situation was not fun and the whole point of it was to have fun and it got out of hand. Now, I know that this whole thing is pretty negative, and I apologize. I did have fun in my games, and I did have a sense of accomplishment, and I do know that people enjoyed their games, but this ended up putting a really bad taste in my mouth as far as campaigns. And, you know, part of the whole thing, like if you're trying to organize something or run something with a group of people... Completion is a, uh, what's it called? Completion is a virtue on its own or something like that. So we did finish the campaign and people saw that I was committed to finishing the campaign, but it did not, you know, burn out in this climactic thing like I thought. It really just fizzled. So hopefully you can learn something from my experience. Now this was a couple years ago and we've done a couple other different campaigns and things like that. I imagine I'll eventually explore some of those other types of campaigns that I've ran, but uh, eventually it just gets kind of disheartening, and hopefully you guys can figure out a better way to do it. Now, I have done several different types, and there is a format of campaign that I actually did after everything that I learned from this fiasco. So, I'm not going to get into that now, but I think we can probably make that another episode at some point, and we can actually go through my what I called my freeform campaign, and it was pretty revolutionary, and it worked pretty well. Um, it's definitely not anything you're used to, but like I said, it's I'm not going to get into it now. Thanks for listening, guys, and thank you for all my Patreon sponsors.